Let's start in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. And uh, I don't know where we'll wind up, but I'll try to wind up at least in the Old Testament. That's my promise. Amen. Genesis chapter 3 this morning. And I want to preach to you for a little while on a familiar passage of Scripture. You've read it. You've heard it. It's been preached on, no doubt, to you before. But I hope that I can show you some things that the Lord has showed me that encouraged my soul and blessed me. Genesis chapter 3, and uh, the first six verses record to us uh, man's original sin, his fall from the perfection that God had created them in. And in verse number 7, the Bible says this, that after they ate, the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Father, we thank you for the time that you've allowed us to have. I pray, Lord, now that you would give me the power and unction of the Holy Ghost for preaching. Lord, I pray that your Son would be lifted up. I pray they'd not see me, but they'd see Him lifted up high and holy, Lord that, Father, You'd help me just to hide behind the shadow of Your cross. Lord, that we would see Jesus and Him alone this morning. See that He's the answer, that He's the help, that He's the cure for sin's curse. Father, we love You. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as you read through the book of Genesis, we are consciously aware that there is a law as you interpret the Bible. And it's called the law of first mention. As you study through the Word of God, the first time something is mentioned, we've found that the characteristics and qualities and context of whatever it is that's been mentioned will typically carry through and can be applied either through the entirety of the rest of the Word of God or until some great doctrinal shift necessitates that the nature of it change. Can I give you an example? All through the Old Testament, the blood that was shed covered sins. And you see it even here in the garden. In fact, in the very next few verses, it says in verse 21, "...unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them." Now, all through the Old Testament, 
the uh, blood sacrifice would cover a man's sins. And everywhere that you see blood applied in the Bible, everywhere that it is applied sacrificially, it's always for the purpose of covering sins. But as we come to the New Testament, something has changed. We're no longer looking to the beggarly elements of the Old Testament law. We're no longer looking to the blood of animals, the blood of bulls and of goats, because the Hebrews writer says that it was impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. But we look to the blood of the Lamb of God that was shed for us on Calvary. And His blood does not cover sin. His blood cleanses from sin. It does not merely cover it for a momentary period of time. But after we come through the blood of Calvary, God says their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And so we see that there is a pattern through the Bible. And some of those qualities stay and some of them go as there is a great doctrinal shift that takes place at Calvary. In the same way, everything that's mentioned in the Word of God, when it's mentioned the first time, we learn a lot about it. Now, I don't have to be a smart man to understand that we're going to see a lot of things mentioned for the first time in the book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Word of God. It records for us the oldest history in the Word of God. I know people say the book of Job is most likely was penned earlier, and that may be the case, but you don't get any earlier than in the beginning. Somebody say amen to that. The content of what's being recorded stretches further, much further than Job's day in the book of Genesis. In fact, we come to a time when all of existence was veiled in darkness and chaos, and when the creative power of God pulled back the curtain of nothing, stepped out onto the darkness of nothing, and spoke, and all of a sudden everything came into existence. You say, preacher, do you believe that? Yeah, I believe that. You say, but my, my science teacher in elementary. Well, I believe God more than I believe your science teacher in elementary school. Uh, and I don't say that to offend you. That's just the reality. Listen, if you can accept Genesis 1-1, you should have no struggle with any other portion of the Word of God. You could believe that God could, in a creative act, step out and with the power of His Word, frame the worlds. And it should be no struggle to believe anything else in the Word of God. And so it stretches all the way back to the beginning of time when all of a sudden God stepped out of eternity into time, began to create. A lot of things are mentioned for the first time in the book of Genesis. In fact, as you study through this story, there are a lot of things that are mentioned for the first time. In fact, you find, for instance, uh, the uh, idea of fig leaves is mentioned for the first time in Genesis chapter 3. And fig leaves represent a man's attempt at righteousness. You know, when mankind knew they were naked, when they knew they had sinned, when they saw themselves as inadequate to God, rather than running to God and saying, Lord, will you do something about it? They ran to the fig leaves and they sewed themselves aprons. But it didn't do anybody any good because they knew it wasn't good enough and God knew it wasn't good enough. And Adam says this, I was afraid because I was naked. He still understood that though he had covered that nakedness, he was still naked. You'll find, uh, for instance, the first time the serpent is mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3 when the Bible says that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Now, we understand that very likely this biologically was a snake, but we understand it also was a personification of the person of Satan. We understand that both because of the fact that I don't know about you, but I've never met a snake that can talk. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, and especially one that was interested in getting me in trouble. Amen. But, uh, and I'm not a snake lover. I'm just telling you, it's never happened. I've, I've never been hanging out and had a, had a big old black snake crawl up and say, Psst, go pull on that person's hair. You know, I've never had that happen to me. We understand this is not an ordinary serpent. We understand that this very likely was Satan personified as a serpent. But the Bible says this about the serpent, that he was subtle. And all through the Word of God, this uh, symbolism of the serpent carries through as being figurative 
of the person of Satan. Well, there's another word that's found for the first time in Genesis chapter 3, and I want you to notice it with me. Look what it says in the Word of God. Verse 14 says this, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art what? Cursed above all cattle. You'll find it again uh, down in uh, verse number 17. The Bible says this, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. The very first time that you find the idea of a curse in the Word of God, it's in connection with Genesis chapter 3. Now, it's important that we understand what a curse is. Because a curse is not some sort of just a Wiccan witchcraft. It's not just a bunch of hoodoo. It's not just uh, someone pronouncing some kind of hex over you. But rather, it is uh, the spiritual consequence of wickedness and evil. God did not choose or want to curse Adam. That was just a natural result of his disobedience to the Lord. I don't know if you realize this, but sin affects things. Sin affects things. God's not sitting up in heaven trying to find something to catch you at. Sin affects things. When you do wrong, you reap the cause and the consequence of that sin. When we commit iniquity, it has a cursing effect in our lives. Now, again, I'm not talking about being unlucky. I'm not talking about losing at a sports game. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, stepping under a ladder or breaking your mirror or uh, stepping on a black cat. What I'm talking about is that sin has consequences, and those consequences take effect in a person's life when they begin to commit sin. In the same respect, we find that in this passage... Man was created in innocence, in a perfect environment, with a perfect job to do, with perfect communion and fellowship, and yet man sinned. And once he sinned, we find this, that everything changed. When we read this portion of Scripture, what we're really reading about is the curse of sin. What sin does to this world, what sin does to our life. And there's a few interesting things I want to point out to you this morning in the preaching of God's Word. I want to preach for a little while on the cure for sin's curse. What happened when Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What took place? What changed in the world? Now, I'll confess to you, I want to do this backwards. Any of you ever been called backwards before? I'm a little backwards sometimes, but you'll understand why as we come to the close of the sermon. I want you to notice what the Lord says to Adam. Now, remember, Adam is the federal head of the human race. I know that we've been taught to believe that's not so, but we find from the Word of God that is so. The Bible does not say, and by one woman sin entered into the world. The Bible says, and by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Uh, By one man. It was Adam's transgression that spiraled man into depravity. Adam is the reason that you and I are born with a sin nature. Now, I'm not trying to excuse Eve of any guilt that she may uh, should bear, but I'm saying this, when Eve ate of the fruit, Eve fell. But when Adam ate of the fruit, we all fell. And it changed the world that we live in. God looks at Adam and pronounces this curse. He says to Adam in verse number 17, And unto Adam he said, Because... Thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Can I sum it up this way? The first thing God says to Adam is He speaks of a laborsome life that he would have to live. You know, we, we've kind of grown up, well, some, some folks grow up to love work, some folks grow up to hate work, some folks grow up to still not know what work is. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> 
Work was never intended as a curse or a scourge upon humanity. And in a perfect environment where the body did not fatigue, where the environment did not assault, work was a pleasant thing. God created a garden. He placed man in it. He looked at Adam. He said, this garden is your responsibility and you are to tend to it. We do not know how much time Adam and Eve spent in the garden. Boy, you want to talk about something you can get in a fist fight with some folks over. Just spend a little time talking about how long Adam and Eve spent in the garden. Uh, can I answer that for you? I, I, I'm going to answer it. You ready? You know how much time that, that Adam and Eve spent in the garden. You ready? The Bible don't say. That's the reality of it. The Bible does not say how long they were in the garden. But we understand whatever amount of time they were in the garden, it was Adam's responsibility to tend and to care for the Garden of Eden. No doubt he did this day in and day out with joy in his heart. We don't hear a single complaint from Adam until sin entered the picture. We don't ever have a narrative of Adam coming in and his back aching and calluses on his hands and blisters on his feet and him saying to Eve, you know, honey, I just don't know how much longer I can do this. This is just getting too much. I don't know if I can handle this anymore. Can you believe i got this whole garden? I'm the only one to take care. I just can't do it. No. Work was an enjoyable thing to Adam until sin entered into the picture. Once sin enters into the picture, God says, All right, Adam, now life is going to be a laborsome thing for you. Life is going to be a difficult thing for you. And he basically says three things. Look at verse number 17 again. What's the first thing he says about life? Look at the end of the verse. It says, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Let me say this. God looked at Adam and said, Adam... Life is going to be a sorrowful thing for you now. You've dwelt in bliss and happiness. You've dwelt in perfect communion with me. But now that sin has entered the picture, sorrow has entered the picture. I want to be very clear with what I say. I'm not implying that everybody's woes and trouble are due to personal sin in their life. I believe there's lots of folks that their woes and trouble are due to personal sin in their life. But I don't believe that's true of everyone. Certainly, we look at the life of Job. And uh, Job's uh, troubles in life were not the result uh, of his sin. But listen to what the book of Job says about it. It says in verse uh, 6 and 7 of Job chapter 5, Although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground, yet... Man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. You know what they're saying to Job in this passage? They're saying this. I understand that trouble has a source. I understand that sorrow is reality. And they're even saying this. I understand affliction don't come out of the dust. Uh, trouble don't come from just nowhere. Sometimes we bring trouble on ourselves. But let me say that the best that you try, the hardest that you work, the most that you do, man is born unto trouble. You're going to have sorrow in this life. You're going to have difficulty in this life. Ever wondered why life has to be so hurtful sometimes? I, listen, I, stay with me this morning. I, I, that may sound silly, but have you ever wondered why life has to be so hurtful sometimes? You hear people talk about it all the time. Well, if God was in heaven, He wouldn't let people suffer. Well, if sin wasn't in this world, people wouldn't suffer. People, uh, people blame a lot of things on God. You know that? <laughs> Even later on, do you know this? When they named Noah, they talked about Noah being able to relieve mankind of the curse. And you know what they said? The curse that the Lord hath placed on the ground. I don't know about you, friend. I don't know how long God uh, was, uh, that Adam and Eve were in the garden before this took place. But it wasn't God that brought the curse in. It was Adam that brought the curse in. And people look at this world and they say, why is there so much suffering if there's a God in heaven? The reason is because there's a God in heaven, but there's not a God in everyone's heart. 
If men would turn to the God of heaven and kneel upon Him and yield unto Him and look to Him, I'm not saying man would live in perfection, but I'm saying there'd be a lot less suffering and a lot less heartache. People always want to, they want to talk about the wars that have been had in, for religion's sake. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Every atheist wants to say, well, what about all the wars fought uh, in religion's name? Well, what about all the wars fought in secular, militant, humanistic atheism's name? Tell me about the killing fields. Tell me about how many people communist Russia killed. They didn't need, listen, they didn't need to have a God to kill people because it's not God, it's mankind, it's humanity. It is sin and the results of sin in our life. Life would become a sorrowful thing for humanity. Do the best you can, but you're still going to shed tears in this world. Work as hard as you want to. Try to put yourself in a bubble. Try to hide yourself away. But despite your best effort, you're still going to hurt sometimes. You're still going to have sorrow sometimes because that's the reality of life. He looks at Adam and says, Adam, life will be sorrowful now. Job said it this way in Job 14, 1 and 2. Man that is born of a woman is a few days full of trouble. A few days and full of trouble. I think often about the songs that we sing. So many of the songs, one of the reasons I love that Redback uh, hymn book is because so many of the songs, if you look at the copyright date, they're written in the Depression. And they were songs, they may, listen, they may not have been the most high church songs. They may have not laid out the, the most doctrinal treaties of any other songs, but they're, they're birthed and born of real people that suffered and struggled and needed a God on His throne that they could look to for hope and comfort. That's why they say that Alfred E. Brumley was standing out in the cotton field one day, and the sun just beating down on him. He was a younger man, and life's sorrows began to crowd around, and he thought to himself as he saw a little bird flutter away, oh, that I could be like that little bird and just flutter away from all the heartache and trouble. And then he thought to himself, you know, one day, one day that's exactly what's going to happen. Right now, here I am anchored in this sin-sick world, but one of these days when Christ returns, His vile body will be made like unto His glorious body. He'll come uh, for His own. He'll come to us in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with Him in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And he sat down and he thought to himself some glad morning when this life is over I'll fly away they're born out of reality they're born out of suffering and I don't know about you but I find this that life is not measured in the doctrinal treaties that we memorize but it's measured in the battle scars and tears and heartaches and the sighs that we breathe sometimes I'm not saying there's not a place for the doctrinal song you know Better than that if you've been around here any length of time. But I'm saying this, there's something for the heart songs too. And the songs for people that suffer. Because no matter what, life will always be sorrowful. He says, he turns to Adam and he says this about the work that he would have to do. Look at verse number 18. God looks at Adam and says, Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. He says, Adam, life is going to be sorrowful from here on out. But he looks at him and says, Adam, life's going to be a struggle for you from here on out. I don't know what the conditions were in the garden before sin entered the picture. I know there were no thorns and thistles, but I mean, I don't know how much tending Adam really had to do. It might have been, you ever met somebody that had a green thumb? You ever want to just punch him right in the nose? 
I, it seemed like they didn't even have to try. You know, they'd go, they'd just, they'd buy tomato plants, just kind of kick them out on the garden. They didn't even do nothing. They'd go away three weeks at a time, not water it, and they'd come in carrying just bushel loads of tomatoes. They'd look so pretty and red and round. I don't know if that's what it was like for Adam, but I know this. After sin entered the picture, it wasn't like that. He'd have to work for every scrap of ground that he could grow something out of. And boy, isn't that how life feels sometimes? Life is a struggle. You know, I'm, I'm 28 years old. I'm not old like Carrie is. But I can tell by his aged wisdom and his slow movement now that life is taking a toll on him. And, you know, when you're young, you don't think about it. But there's folks in this room that they have to fight for every inch. They have to claw to get out of bed in the morning. When they get out, you've heard me joke about it before, when they go to bed at night, they put more of themselves in the nightstand than they put in the bed. And everything's a struggle. And every movement hurts. And everything's an effort. You know why this old sin-sick body is breaking down under the weight of the curse that Adam brought on humanity. And life will always be a struggle. Until the Lord comes back, there will always be struggles in life. But i got good news for you. He looks at Adam and he says this. He says, Adam, life is going to be sorrowful for you. Life is going to be a struggle for you. But look at verse number 19. He says this, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Adam, life is going to be sorrowful for you now. Life's going to be a struggle. But don't ever forget that life is going to be short. I don't know if you've ever read it, studied it, but at the end of Genesis chapter 3, they expel man from the garden. And the reason they did this is because uh, the Lord looks at Himself. If you don't believe God's a trinity, just look in the Bible. He has a conversation with Himself. And they drive man from the garden lest he should eat of the tree of life. There were two trees in the garden of particular importance and prominence. One was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, of which Adam ate. And when he ate, he was spiraled into sin. The second was the tree of life, of which if a man ate, he'd live eternally in that condition. And when God expelled man from the garden, it was not an act of punishment. It was an act of grace. For had they gotten to that tree and tried to eat of that fruit to alleviate maybe the suffering that they were feeling, for eternity they would have lived in a sorrowful, struggling, sin-sick condition. I'll tell you one of the good graces of this life, and if you're young here, this don't make sense to you, but if you've got a few miles down the road, this makes sense to you. One of the great graces of life is it doesn't go on forever. It doesn't go on forever. You're not always going to hurt. You're not always going to weep. You're not always going to be fearful. You're not always going to be confused. You're not always going to be discouraged. Life is short, and it does end eventually. He looks at Adam. He says, Adam, you're going to have a laborsome life. And he turns his attention to Eve. Look back at verse number 16. It's interesting to me that as he speaks to Eve, the word curse is not found. Adam bore the brunt of the curse, but Eve is still affected by it. And he says this, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. In the pronunciation to Adam, we see a laborsome life. 
But when God turns His attention to Eve, He speaks of the fractured family that sin would leave in its wake. You know, I'm about to get a lot of amens from women this morning. And then I'm about to get a lot of shoes thrown at me this morning. But uh, as you look at the thing that a woman has to bear, let me just say this, that the things that men have to bear in their life, they may be rigid, they may be calculated and cold, but they bear none the heart pain that women have to bear in this world that we live in. You know, even the way that a father loves his child, and I love my son with all my heart, but his mama's heart and his heart are the same heart. It's just different. I don't care what you think about it. I don't care what you... You can disagree with me if you want, but I've seen it. A father hurts for his child, but a mama hurts with her child. And that severing never takes place. It's always that way. Part of the reason for this, part of the reason for the heartache, and I'll explain why in a moment, is the result of sin in this world that we live in. Children are inherited to the Lord, the psalmist says. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full. But the truth of the matter is this. It's true that happy is the man that hath his quiver full, but he's also going to have a lot more sharp pointed ends to have to contend with. He looks at Eve and he says this, Eve, you're going to have to deal with the burden of bearing when you have children. Verse number 16, the first part, he says this, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Now, if work used to be easy on men... Don't think they had it the easiest, because ladies used to, childbearing was painless. Before sin entered the picture, you say, well, it's a shame they didn't have any kids before that. I thought the same thing. I don't understand all the dynamics of what took place within the garden. But I do understand that uh, repopulation was a possibility, because God commanded them to do it. He said, go and replenish the earth and be fruitful and multiply and prosper. I do not understand how that would have worked. I've never... Uh, I don't want to get too graphic this morning. Let's just say this, that I'm pretty sure one of the prerequisites for having kids, you've got to know how to be naked. Right? I'm worried about some of you. <laughs> Listen, I, the, the public school system has failed you miserably. If, if you're at this stage in life and you don't understand that yet. I'm going to have to have a whole new side of counseling in this ministry. What I'm saying is this. I don't understand all the details. I don't understand the possibility, but I understand this. If God pronounces that childbearing would be met with pain, then it's to imply that before sin entered the picture, it would not be met with pain. I do believe there is a physical aspect to this, but I do not believe it ends there. For we understand the difficulty that a mother feels throughout the process of pregnancy, the sickness, the discomfort to body, the emotional upheaval that takes place, the burden that she bears in trying to bring those children into the world. We live in a day of modern medicine. We live in a day where babies are had in hospitals, but up until the past 200 years, it was not at all uncommon for women to die in childbearing. So oftentimes their life would have to be given for that little baby to be brought into this world. Sin was the cause of such pain. Looks at Eve and says there'll be burden in bearing. But notice the next phrase he says. Now, if you're not careful, this will seem redundant. He looks at Eve and he says unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Then he says this, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Now, that's interesting to me. The reason it's interesting is because 
if we just read over that at a glance and gloss over it, it seems redundant. He just got through telling Eve, Eve, you're going to have sorrow in conception and in bearing children. And then he turns around and says, oh, and by the way, Eve, there's going to be sorrow in bringing forth children. Why would God say it this way? Well, I think there's a reason for it. If you trace it down, you'll find this, that those two words for sorrow are a little bit different from each other. The first one deals with the idea of physical pain, the idea of struggling in a physical sense. But listen to the next time that that word uh, sorrow is used when it's used on the second occasion. It says this, It is vain for you to rise up early, Psalms 127, to set up late to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. If you read the 127th Psalm, you'll find it's a psalm on parenting. It begins with, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And it begins with, except the Lord keep the house, and the watchmen rise in vain. We read that and we think that applies to everything. I believe it can apply to a lot of things. But the context of the 127th Psalm is uh, dealing with parenting. You know what it's saying? It's saying this, uh, you can't watch your kids, so you might as well give them to the Lord for Him to watch them. You can't raise your kids, right? Let me make a confession. I I can't. There are too many decisions. There are too many variables. There are too many things out of my control to raise my child right. You say, preacher, what do you do? You just give them away. Yeah, I give them away. I give them away to the Lord God of heaven. And I say, Lord, you've got to lead me and you've got to guide me. And I'm trusting you with him because you've got to be the one to guide me and direct me in these things. And in the midst of that psalm, notice it again. It says, it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. I think that he looked at Eve and said, Eve, you're going to have to deal with the burden of bearing. I believe when he looks at Eve, one of the things he's trying to tell him is this. Eve, you're going to have to deal with the problems of parenting. Does that sound like any of you? Let me read it again. You ever spent any nights like this? It's vain for you to what? To rise up early. To rise up early. I'm just going to tell you something. Those of you that don't have kids, want to have kids, try and have kids, you better get all the sleep you can get right now. Because it don't matter how... I mean, listen, you, you can wind that kid up as, as much, but at a certain time in the morning, 6, 7, 8, 8, whatever it is, he's up. And you say, but he's still tired. It don't matter. He'll get up and just be in a bad mood. To rise up early. Any of you parents ever done this? Sit up late. You ever done that? You ever set up with the porch light on? Just staring down the driveway? What about now? They're grown and gone. You ever, you ever sit up late praying, worrying over them? Trying to fix things you can't fix? What about the next phrase that says this to eat the bread of sorrows? You ever missed a meal because you're worried about your kids? You ever uh, just scooted up to the dinner table and looked at it and it just. The food turned to ash in your mouth. He said, i got no appetite. That's the reality of parenting. Parenting is sublime. It's wonderful. There's nothing like it in the world. But you better get ready to pull your heart out of your chest and put it in theirs. Because a lot of times, they're going to take that heart with them. And when you see them, I think all the time, when I was 16 years old, I remember, I went and got my, I don't understand kids today. I'm not, if this is you, I'm not being critical, all right? I'm just saying me and you ain't a lot because I went this way. Kids today, they won't get their license until they're 35 years old. I don't understand that. When I was a kid, man, I mean, let me tell you something, I was waiting. On, I, I, on September 11th, 
I turned uh, 16. On September 12th, I had my parents down at the DMV to get my license. I already, Dad had already bought me a car, an old police car. And, uh, I mean, I was ready to go, man. And I'll never forget pulling down the driveway for the very first time. I remember Mom telling me, it seemed like a thousand times, drive slow, drive slow, drive slow. Wear your seatbelt. If you've got your seatbelt, put your seatbelt on. And don't go far. And don't, stay, don't stay gone far. And I remember, I can see it in my mind, driving down that gravel driveway and looking in the rearview mirror and seeing Mom and Daddy just stand there watching. whole new world was opening up then. whole new phase. I... I'm ashamed to say how many times they probably had to eat the bread of sorrows on my account. No doubt your parents had to eat the bread of sorrows many times on your account. Why is that, preacher? It's because we live in a sin-sick world. I wish that kids just come already loaded up with all the software and technology they needed to get through life, but that ain't the reality of it. They've got to be raised. They've got to be taught. They've got to be prayed over. They've got to be wept over. They've got to be worked with. They've got to be struggled with. And your heart breaks sometimes. And that's part of it. Then he looks at Eve and he says this. Get your shoes ready, ladies. It says in verse 16, And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. She'd have to deal with the struggle of submission in this sin-sick world. I, I need about three hours to say what I want to say right here but I'm going to trust the Holy Ghost to say it concisely. I counsel a lot of times with folks, marital issues, and um, so oftentimes it's rooted around this. Not always, but, but so oftentimes. I've done premarital counseling sometimes with, with young people young, and, and, and tried to convey some of these truths to them. Do you understand that the... Lord, help me say this right. You understand that the roles of the home were not in place until sin entered into the world. You hear people talk all the time about Ephesians chapter 5. Can I read it to you? Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. It says this, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. I didn't say that. God said that. As unto the Lord. I didn't say that. God said that. For the husband is the head of the wife. I didn't say that. God said that. Even as Christ is the head of the church, He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. I didn't say that. God said that. Now, you may have been raised in a secular humanist environment. You may have been raised in the ideology of the world that may be unfamiliar to you. But that's how God designed this thing. But I've always found it interesting that before God ever says that, in verse 21 of that same chapter, he says this, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. When I counsel with people, I oftentimes talk about two different aspects to the structure of the home. There's what we call roles. The roles are this, the husband's the head. The wife is to be submissive to her husband. The children are to be in submission and subjection to both the mother and the father. The husband is commanded to love his wife. He's not encouraged. He's commanded to love his wife, to care for. The wife is never commanded to love her husband, but she is commanded to submit to him. But before God ever says any of that, you know what he says? He gives us a hint about how the relationship ought to work. And he says, submitting yourselves one to another. 
I've likened it to this, and I, I know I must hurry, but I believe this is paramount this morning. I've likened it unto church bylaws. When I came to the church, the church did not have bylaws. And one of the things we set about doing was to establish bylaws for our church. And we met, several of us men, we met every single week on Monday nights, and we labored for probably two months, I don't know how long, and we drew up bylaws and we established bylaws. And then we spent some time, and every Monday people could come out and they could ask us questions, and if they had anything they wondered about bylaws, you know, nobody cares. But, but yeah, people could if they wanted to. And, uh, and we spent some time doing that. We passed out rough drafts of these bylaws to everybody in the church, and they could read it, and they could study it, and if they had any questions, they'd come to us. And then after what felt like a laborsome process, we finally voted and established the church bylaws. And that's the last time that we've ever had them out. Do you know why? A church has bylaws for when things go wrong. But if a church is having to pull the bylaws out every time they have a business meeting, there's something bad wrong. In the same way, the roles are there for when things go wrong. You don't know what to do. I don't know about you, but me and my wife, we don't always agree. I know that's a shock, but that's the reality. We don't always agree. She's a lot smarter than I am. It takes me a little more time sometimes to understand. And so for those situations, there are roles. She knows what her role is, and I know what my role is, and we know what her child's role is. But let me tell you something. Husbands, if, if every day you're having to say this, well, bless God, I'm the head of this home, and you're going to do what I say, I'll tell you this, two things. One, something's bad wrong, and two, you better be learning how to cook. Let me say this, too. I believe women have a scriptural liberty if they feel their husband is doing something wrong. I believe they have a scriptural liberty to follow him and trust that God will hold him accountable and not them. I believe that. But wives, if every day you're saying, well, I don't want to follow him, but that's okay. One of these days, God will straighten him out. There's something bad, bad wrong. And ladies, you better learn how to change your oil. That's not how the home should operate. There are, there are roles in place for when those times come. And you'll have times, if you're married, you're going to have times when you'll disagree and times when men, you'll have to take the leadership in the home. And there'll be times, ladies, I hate to say it, but if you've got a husband like my wife does, there'll be times he does something stupid that you don't understand, but you have to say, well, God put him as my leader and I will trust him and I will follow him. But the day in, day out is submitting yourselves one to another in fear. You know what that means? Men, if she wants Wendy's, get her Wendy's. Women, if he wants a steak, let him go buy a steak. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Before the garden, there was no need for this. You know why? Because man was in perfect harmony with his wife, his wife with him, and both of them with God. But after sin entered the picture, all of a sudden now there's disharmony. And now there must be a structure. We find in this passage a laborsome life and a fractured family. But can I just give you a quick word of encouragement and then I'll close? There's a reason I went about preaching this backwards. The reason is because I want you to see that before God ever spoke to Adam about a laborsome life, He spoke about something else. Before He ever spoke to Eve about the fractured family life that she'd have to struggle with, He said something else. Before He ever turned to either of them, look back at verse 14. 
And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. And upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Can I say to you that before God ever pronounced a curse, He pronounced a cure. Before God ever, before God ever looked at man and said, here's the consequences, He looked at the serpent and reminded him of the cross. In verse 15 is the very first prophecy in your entire Bible. And it is also, uh, this ought to be a pretty good hint as God's priority is not just the first prophecy, it's also the first messianic prophecy in the entire Word of God. The very first time that God ever gives a prophecy, here's mankind, his life is in pieces, sin has ravaged him, he is naked and ashamed before an almighty God, but before God ever looks at man and pronounces his sin, he looks at the serpent and reminds him that God already has a plan to deal with man's sin. He looks at the serpent. Notice the three things he said, and I'm done. He looks at the serpent. He pronounces the doom of the serpent before he ever pronounces the destiny of the sinner. He looks at the serpent and he says, Cursed art thou above all cattle. He looks at him and he says this, You're going to bear the brunt of this worse than anybody bears the brunt of this. On thy belly shalt thou crawl the days of thy life, and dust shalt thou eat. You know what he's saying? You're never going to get a head up on me. He's looking at him and saying, you're going to be on your belly and in the dust. You're going to live in defeat your entire existence. I have already uh, sentenced you and your destiny. I have already laid upon you a pronunciation of judgment. And your doom is sealed and settled. The devil's wicked. He's evil. And I hate him. I hate him. But I'm sure encouraged to know that his destiny is already sealed. And his death is already certain. And his destruction is already established. He pronounces the doom of Satan, but I want you to notice the distinction of the sinner that he pronounces. He looks in verse 15, look what he says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Now, when we think of that word enmity, we think of the idea of... uh, What am I trying to say? Animosity. I about said admonition. That wouldn't be right, would it? Animosity. But let me say, that's true. God says that between mankind and Satan there will be animosity and they will be at odds with one another. Let me say this, that the greater encouragement in that is that God draws a distinction between the serpent and the seed. He looks at the serpent and He says, You have no hope. But He looks at the seed and He says, You, I will give hope. Can I say this this morning? Sin has a curse. But I'm glad that God is able to curse the sin but cure the sinner. I I know that sin has a curse. I know that sin has a punishment. I know that sin has a payment. But I'm glad that God was able to look at me as a ten-year-old boy. And He did see a sinner, but He saw a sinner that He wanted to save. And He saw a way through the cross of Calvary to separate me from my sin-sick condition, uh, to drive a wedge between my carnality and my need. And He was able to look past who and what I was and see my great need and die upon a cross of Calvary for my need and in my place. He was able to distinguish between me and the serpent. Satan has no chance. But if you're here lost without Christ today, God looks at you and He sees you with grace and love and He cares for you. How did this happen? Well, He not only sees the doom of the serpent and the distinction of the sinner, but I want you to notice this. 
we see the deliverance of the Savior. How's he going to do that? Look at the end of verse 15. He says, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We have a dual picture here, both of the defeat of the Antichrist, who's the seed of Satan. And one day, listen, he'll be crushed underfoot. But we have also in this passage a glimpse towards Calvary. Because it says this, that the way that would happen is that Satan would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is prophesying the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I don't want to be too graphic, but I think anybody that's took a health class understands that a woman does not have seed. Men have seed, but a woman does not have seed. And yet he says the seed of the woman. How could that be except uh, that the divine seed from heaven on high uh, would overtake and would overshadow a little virgin girl by the name of Mary, and she'd be found with child, and she'd bear Him who is the Creator, Him who is the Son of God, and God in the flesh. And that seed of the woman would be bruised, His heel would, upon Calvary's tree. And there, that bruising, you know what that secured? That secured salvation for you and I. You know what the Bible says? That Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Being made a curse for us. For as it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. God pronounced a curse upon humanity. Man brought that curse upon himself. But God took that curse and He placed it upon His blessed Son. And where God reached back His hand and He should have... He should have smitten you and me. He smote the Son of God. He paid our sin debt. He died in our place. Why? Now that the sin and the curse might have none effect in our lives. You're here today. Let me tell you this. You don't have to stay in a cursed condition. You can come to the one that has borne your curse upon Calvary, that has stood in your stead, that has hung in your place, and you can look unto Him and ask His forgiveness. And you know what He said about it? He said, they that are whole need not a physician. I am not come to call the righteous under repentance, but sinners. He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. He said, any that come unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Do you need more? Do you need more? Oh, everyone that thirsteth, let him come to the waters of life. And drink freely. I am the bread of life. He that uh, he that partaketh in me shall never hunger, and he that drinketh of me shall never thirst. Do you need more? The whole Bible. You know what it ends with? It ends with an invitation. Oh, everyone that thirsteth, come and drink. Today, God is waiting to save you if you'll come unto Him. You may be here and you may say, Preacher, I'm saved. But as you describe the way a home is, that's how my home is. Well, you can come to the curse lifter. You can ask Him to give you help and strength and to break the chains of Satan's bondage in your home. You're a wife and you say, Preacher, I struggle with submission. Come ask for the Lord's grace and help. You're here and you say, Preacher, I'm struggling with the problems of parenting. Come to the One that is the Father of all those that come unto Him in faith and He'll give you the strength that you need. If you're a man here, you say, I've been uh, bowing low under the sorrow and struggle of this world. Come to Him that's the lifter up of your head and He'll give you the strength and encouragement that you need. Whatever your need is, Come to the one that lifts the curse, and he can give you the strength that you need.